You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, episode 25. We're coming up on everyone's favorite time of year, field season. So today, we're going to be revisiting episode 8, What's in Your Bag? We'll be talking about what our field must-haves are, how to deal with your period, and some basic first aid. Today's panelists are Emily Long, Kirsten Lopez, and Deirdre Black. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Today we're talking about what's in our dig kits, our survey packs, how we prepare for the field in different locations, and how to handle business in the most comfortable way possible, and limiting any potential awkwardness with the rest of the crew. I'm Emily Long, and I'm a seasonal archaeologist for Alpine Archaeological Consultants, a long-time, a long-term substitute teacher, a blogger, and a host for the podcast Trow Tales: Stories from the Field. Also, here is Deidre Black. Deidre, tell the podcast audience a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. This is Deidre Black. I've been a CRM archaeologist for over 15 years, and I've worked in most bio zones in most of the states between Michigan and Texas, and I'm currently doing uh, review work for FEMA. Very cool. So, Deidre, how do you prepare for um, uh, an excavation or a survey? What do you put in your backpack? Well, it's going to depend on where I'm going. Mm -hmm. I have lots and lots of field gear because I've worked most of the central U.S. from Michigan to, to Texas and also in Belize. So it depends on where I'm going and what the work is. I don't pack the same thing for survey in Michigan in the winter as I do for El Paso in the summer. Oh, I can't imagine. That's a pretty big difference. (laughs) They're a little different. (laughs) What would you say are your essentials? Like, no matter where you go, like, that's going to be in the backpack. Well, I always use Camelback Mm -hmm. because I just get more water that way. Yeah. And I always have... My mini clipboard, a Munsell first aid kit, trowel, knife, and my freshette. Very nice. Do you tend to have to carry a shovel and um, screen on your backpack? Uh, From most of the places that I work, yes, we do shovel test. And it's usually one person, one test. It's not two people to a test for most of the places that I've worked. That's a lot of extra weight. Yeah. So I have mini screens that I've built if I'm going to be trekking over a long area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always have to make sure to have, like, extra carabiners and little bungees to try to find unique ways to strap down a mini shovel, a mini screen, all of those extra tools just so they're not, like, accidentally getting caught in a tree or anything of that sort. Yeah. I tend to use my shovel as a walking stick. Ah. So I have a shovel in one hand and a machete in the other. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you've been in places where it's, like, really dense. Yeah. And then a tremble in my third hand. (laughs) If only. (laughs) Yeah, I I always feel a little bit off balance when I have like the screen on my back and then carrying the shovel and then trying to have a tremble at the same time. And fortunately, most of my work has me in the West, so I don't need to hack through that much vegetation. Yeah, and a lot of the West, you don't have to have the shovel either. Actually, we do, surprisingly. Really? Yeah, um, Yeah. we have a, a lot of cheatgrass. 
um, uh, different bunch grasses, or even just trying to hack through uh, juniper and uh, sagebrush roots. I was thinking of my friends in New Mexico who are like, we don't even dig shovel tests. <laughs> I've been in a lot of places out west where they don't do it at all because there's so much stuff on the surface that they figure mm-hmm. you can determine any kind of significance just just from what's there. Because, yeah, if you have thousands of pottery shirts, yeah, I can't imagine needing to dig much further. And I, I like those areas. I, I like not having to carry a screen. Yeah, luckily my, my screen's pretty small. It, it's just big enough that my backpack fits inside of it. That means you can put less dirt in there. Oh, nice. So. Oh, do you think there are any particular essentials that should be in any person starting out in the field? Like I, for example, I always make sure I have like little electrolyte tablets and then like a baggie with toilet paper just in case. Oh, I always have the toilet paper. Oh, yeah. I always have the toilet paper. I have a little first aid kit that is in a waterproof container and also it is shock resistant. Oh, wow. Because I've had busted, busted things coming out of my, my first aid kit. My, I have little miniature versions of uh, blister band-aids, regular band-aids, your basic over-the-counter painkillers, and mm-hmm. uh, allergy relief and stuff like that. Oh, those are essentials. Definitely the allergy and pain relief. <laughs> I have a little uh, disposable razor blade. and What would that be for? Please- when you get really bad blisters, oh, and they're and you're at the top of the hill after wading wading through a half a mile of water, and you just have a the skin is hanging on by a little bit, and it hurts like hell. Oh, that sounds awful. That's a good so idea. The, yeah, I get a lot of blisters. My the morphology of my feet unfortunately makes me more prone than average, so I have a lot of blister solutions. Oh, man. Yes. I have. I've done that. Just cut the extra skin off so it stops wiggling around. Oof. Yeah. And that's why it's at the disposable razors, uh, medical razors. Mm-hmm. They're very tiny. Oh, There's that's a, a great idea. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of us carry, like, a knife, but I can't imagine that'd be quite as sanitary. Nope. Ugh. I'm going to open the can of tuna and then cut the skin off my foot. <laughs> Why not? Sounds perfectly safe. And tweezers. Oh, yeah. And a tick key. Okay, so I only just this past season, so last season, discovered Uh the wonderful world of ticks. And I should have had Uh something like that because then I started carrying around uh, tweezers all the time. But I've heard about tick keys, and that sounds like an essential. Well, especially if you're trying to get a tick off of someone else. Oh. It's easier. I had to get the tweezers for the tick that was in my ear, though, last summer. Oh, no, nobody needs that. Oh, that sounds awful. Yeah, I was in uh, Oklahoma during apparently like the worst tick season they've this had past, in a long time. Yeah, this past summer I was in I was in the Wachita Forest and it was their worst tick season in over a decade. Oh, my gosh. And it was hot. It sounds awful. So Everyone can you get a tick key anywhere? Um. You can get them online, and most outdoor supply stores in areas where there are ticks will carry a tick key. Okay. I'm going to add that to my essential list. (laughs) When you bring them up online, a million different versions pop up. I like, there's a little metal one that's small and has a thin profile, and I I have that one. Well, that sounds, that sounds like a good one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, my backpack is 
kind of all put together as like a giant puzzle and just like certain things go in the bottom i have my rain pants my uh gaiters the uh, rain jacket and then like in the main uh bag the clipboard um my clipboard bag. goes in my pants See, I, I think that'd be nice, but I like having a big clipboard for uh, rainy seasons because it's a little easier to shelter the, the paper. Oh. I have a, a half-size closing clipboard. Oh, that's so cool. Is it a, so one I, those little metal ones? Uh-huh. It looks just like the big metal ones, but it's half-size, and I always ask ahead of time, you know, is it okay if I fold my paperwork in half? Oh, that's handy. And it's just a, it's just a little bit bigger than my Munsell book. And so I take my Munsell pages that I'll be needing out and stick them in there. Okay, so you don't have to take the entire thing. No. But you don't think you're going to need, like, the the variations on red? <laughs> oh, I need the variations on red. <laughs> I don't need the glaze when I'm in the high desert. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our stuff always ends up being some variation of, like, 10 YR, 5 4. <laughs> Yep. So where I was like, it's light yellow brown. The two and a half, seven and a half, and ten will get you almost the whole United States. <laughs> Unless you're in the bottom of a trench. And you're like, That's what true. is this? <laughs> well, in terms of having to take care of business in the field um i know all personally right. yeah that's the exciting part here um <laughs> all right which one are we going to talk about first well, in terms of uh exciting world of menstruation um all right i mean working with male coworkers, i've never had any issue but it's more it's just trying to just kind of keep it you know just like well it's not a big deal guys i have um usually have a bag that's like covered like, just with a couple strips of duct tape. And uh -huh. then I throw a dryer sheet in the bag. And then, so, leave no trace. I can put pads, tampons, whatever in there. And just throw it in my backpack. And then, at the end, I can just throw it away. And so, you can't see what's in it. And then, there's no smell. There you go. Yeah, what uh, about you? What do you think is handy? Well, I've gone through a bunch of different things. Um, mostly, I have uh, sandwich baggies. Mm -hmm. Because I always buy them in bulk for field work anyway just to hold all my stuff mm -hmm. and uh, there's some just some toilet paper in there and I'm, I'll say hey take a break before you come up behind me or you'll see the full moon of Kentucky <laughs> and you know it's something that lots of people do and we don't need to like hide it it's not shameful it's like hey exactly. I need to go step behind the street for a minute mm -hmm. takes a while <laughs> yeah and then, it's funny how it's treated it's like it's not a big deal but treat it as a big deal although we're now trying to make it not a big deal yeah i mean there's some people there's people in my family that have you know pmdd and so it is a really big deal mm -hmm. for them everything hurts oh yeah their temperature's higher and you just don't know every person who menstruates is a little different exactly and so I know a lot of people are starting to use the cups. Yeah, and I've heard mixed success with that for in terms uh, of the field. Like, I've heard great yep. success, not in the field, but in the field, it, it can be tricky. Um, this is one of the things, you don't want to use it in the field for the first time. Mm -mm. Or actually, nothing 
<laughs> like don't use tampons for the first time in the field. Don't use don't use anything in the field for the first time. Um, that's one of that's one of those very individual things. Some people their anatomy just does not like the cups. I'm one of those people. I tried, I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also contraindicated uh, for most IUDs. Oh really? So, because when you pull pull it out, you can accidentally pull the string that huh. is the IUD, and that's not a good thing. Um, I know a lot of people with IUDs who do use the cup. Mm-hmm. They're just extra careful. Yeah. I would just be, like, generally concerned um, sanitary issues for yeah. in yeah. the field. And, yeah. like, I know a lot of the projects I'm on, we have to camp. And so where on earth are you going to really yeah, because you're supposed boil to... that easily? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I haven't been fortunate enough. I haven't had to camp too many times. So I, I usually have my own bathroom, but still. It's gross enough. Oh my gosh, yeah. And messy enough. I'm like, ugh. So much stuff. Yeah, I always seem to luck out that my period always happens to fall when we have a project. It's like, it couldn't happen on the break. Oh no. It's so cruel. But, uh. And uh, I'm also interested in these Thinks panties. Yes, I have I, really no idea how they work, but I'm wondering, like, they need field testers, because I think they, they would have quite the market in female archaeologists. Well, from the reviews I've seen, I don't think I would use them as my sole means of uh, mm-hmm. menstrual absorbance, because there's I think they would also absorb sweat. Oh. But, like, mm-hmm. if it was a light day, or if you want to use them in conjunction with a tampon, um, mm-hmm. they also make... They make all styles, including boy shorts. Oh, that'd yeah. be comfy. Yeah. Well, I use men's boxer briefs in the field anyway. I mean, so. that's a good point. I mean, issues of chafing. Yeah, I've got a lot of chub rub issues. So <laughs> I get the long men's boxer briefs, and bonus, they don't have a seam up the butt. So when I'm squatting, mm-hmm. like to get my screen or if I'm excavating, there's a significantly less up the booty. And I don't, I'm, I mean, that was something I was never um, really told about when I started working um, more in survey, like in doing tons and tons of survey that, I mean, it never w- occurred to me like that could be a major issue with um, sweat and just your pants being a problem. And so, I mean, I've heard from a lot of different um, folks on uh if you want to use even something like a talcum powder to um, uh, my, coconut my oil. Th- my thighs laugh at talcum powder. <laughs> wow. I use deodorant and, and, and fabric. I make sure that fabric is there. Mm-hmm. It's also one of the reasons I had to stop wearing jeans in the field. Yeah, jeans are, I've, I've found, way too heavy. And well, and as, and as they sweat, they mm-hmm. pull down, and no amount of belt saves them. Yeah. So for those of you out there who might have similar issues in terms of chafing or just you're, you're curious, like, well, how can I prevent um, issues like blisters, sock liners, and moleskin for chafing, um, like the boxer briefs, like Deidre's talking mm-hmm. about. Um, I personally, I love um, those uh, tight running shorts. Very comfy. Pop them under your pants no issues and then um if you're working in an area where there's less um vegetation that can rip at your pants a good um wicking fabric is great a good uh you know those pants that then can turn into shorts 
very comfy, but they're not great if you're in a thorny situation. So, but yeah. Um, do you carry anything in particular in your backpack to help with, uh, chafing issues? Nope. I sure don't. Just to make sure ahead of time that you're all set and ready to go. Yeah. Because that's one of those things that if I start to fill it, it's already too late. That's a good point. It's kind of the same with, like, blisters. It's kind of like, well... Yeah. If you feel it, it's going to be there. I have very expensive socks. Oh, yes. Spend the money on socks and always have an extra pair. I always carry an extra pair in my backpack. Nice. Just in case. Do you have a particular favorite? I do. The um, Smart Wool Expedition Weight. Ooh. They're super thick. Um, I don't even need liner socks with them. That's telling. If you don't need like any kind of liner or worry about that, that's a good sock. Yeah. I mean, I was doing 10 plus miles a day last year in the Wachita Mountains up and down in 100 degree heat and nothing more than a few little pieces of loose skin, no real hardcore blisters. That's that's impressive. Yeah. I've also learned a new way to tie my shoes, so that helps. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll have to put pictures. Do you have any uh, things you think are particular we should chat about with um, what should be in your backpack or things to think about or anything of that sort? Um, I would would like to spread the wonderful uh, use of the ladies' urinals. Now, I have never tried one. Um, which one do you think it. is the most successful? I like the Freshette. It has no, a hard that. It has um, a hard cup that is roughly vulva shaped, mm-hmm. and it has an extendable tube that you then shove back in when you put it back in a pack. I have a, a pencil pouch that oh. I keep mine in. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried others. Um, the Lady J. Uh, doesn't have a very long spout. The Sheenus is sort of ridiculous for field work. And uh, I've also tried the Shiwi. I couldn't get it. I couldn't use it with my pants on. Oh, no. I really wanted it to work because it folds up because mm-hmm. it's made out of silicon, which is very nice. But just for me and my anatomy, I couldn't use it with my pants on. And one of the, the problems was the silicon warms up and it becomes your body temperature and I can't feel it where it is. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the things with the freshette, the freshette's a hard plastic. Mm -hmm. And once I figured out this is what it feels like when, you know, I won't like pee down my leg, you know, I'm like, aha, there it is. (laughs) Using the freshette with the tampon, you just have to be careful which direction the string is going. Because if it's going behind the cup, it'll wick a bit out. Although I will say I've, Last year, I converted to the Marina, and I haven't had to deal with my menses in the in the field, and it's been amazing. Nice. Well, on that yeah. note, let's go to a quick break, and we'll be back. The Archaeology Podcast Network's conference channel is a collection of interviews from conferences around the world. Interviews are usually posted during the conference with minimal editing, so you, the listener, can be there virtually. Check out the conference feed at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash conferences. Now let's get back to the show. Hello, and we're back, and we now have another guest with us. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Kirsten Lopez. I'm on here um, every now and again. 
I am with Oregon State University as a master's graduate student and have been working in CRM for uh, four or five years now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm so happy you're here with us. Uh, we were talking about what we like to have in our backpacks, what are essentials, um, what do we need for uh, during our period, what do we, what's necessary for just taking care of business and making our life just a little bit easier in the field. Now, what would you say are the essentials for you in your backpack? So for me, it really depends on the type of job I'm on. Uh, as a CRM archaeologist, I am on, you know, there's three basic types of work that I get. There's monitoring, um, there's survey, and then there's excavation. And excavation tends to be a little more settled, so I can uh, both have to and can bring a little bit more stuff. Um, the trowel, of course, is key, most in excavation, but can be on survey as well. Monitoring, it's good to have for poking around, but isn't super necessary, of course. Um, other things would be my survey vest, which I carry on survey both in hunting season, near roads, and it's nice to have when visibility is low so you can see team members. Mm -hmm. um, as far as excavation goes, I had an original dig kit that I put together for field school um, much of the items have, um, wandered off, <laughs> um, through both other, uh, archaeologists. Um, they have also been laid to rest as my field school trial sadly was about two years ago in the bottom of a one by one. Um, <laughs> it's a proper send off. Yes. And aside from that, personal wise, it's, it's interesting because I actually do, in the winter, I have done the full um, peel off the three layers of pants and squat rather than use a pea funnel, which I know is a popular item or can be. I haven't been brave enough to, uh, to dare that in the field. I guess I would have to practice a lot on my own before <laughs> taking it out. Yeah, that's, that's some of that. Uh, <laughs> The more personal items, I actually do take some. I do not menstruate uh, by choice, so that is something that I take uh, certain types of birth control to opt out of. That being definitely one of the reasons that I do it is to not have to deal with it in the field because it's, yeah, as we all know, can be a mess. Oh, yes. um, it is one that I, I prefer to, to choose to opt out for. Fair enough. Um, that, you have to do us. whatever makes you the most comfortable. And, yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's interesting. It's like a very personal thing, but at the same time, when you're with your crew for an extended amount of time, it's not personal. So it's a, it's an interesting um, living situation <laughs> with your, yeah. your crewmates and then just trying to just take care of something that should be a, a a simple thing, but just made more difficult for just being in the field. Yes. I mean, there's the logistical portion of, you know, not to, you know, the, the big, of course, uh, prelude I should have given is <laughs> talking about the menses. Um, <laughs> you know, you have transport costs and uh, logistical um, things to worry about when, you know, if you're out, especially if you're backpacking and doing survey or if you're camping in tents, 
Um, if because you can't put you know tampons or pads in porta potties, you exactly. do have to keep that in some sort of plastic container. And depending on how remote you are, you don't want any of that in your tent for mm-hmm. animal reasons. Um, so it's a lot of things that we don't think about until we're out there or if we've done backpacking out, you know, otherwise. So, uh, yeah, the, the logistics of it is kind of, a you know, you can deal with it or you can just not. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Yes. I remember that was a bit of a logistical nightmare um, working in an area with bears. And it's not something you necessarily want to mix it with your container of food, but you have to do what you have to do with a, a bear barrel and so that you don't have bears visiting you in the middle of the night. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> there are miraculous things um, that I actually wouldn't have thought of for as field-friendly, Um except for those animal sort of bear situations to where if you do something along the lines of a diva cup mm-hmm. where you do rinse, uh, you know, it's a, a little um, silicone cup that you insert similar to a tampon and then, you know, you rinse it out afterward. Um, but if you have the ability to rinse it out, like say with the camelback hose um, or shower hose or other way of doing mm-hmm. that, um, that is a really great way to, you know, it goes with the other waste. You know, you don't have something to cart around after that, exactly. which is kind of nice. And we did discuss that um, a little bit b- before you got here. And my main concern with that is just, like you said, if you have the ability to rinse it out. And um, I know just from personal experience, just, I mean, it's difficult to keep things clean. Um, especially in a camping situation or a backpacking situation. So that's always been my concern with something like the Diva Cup where like, unless you're able to have access to a way to like boil it um, Mm -hmm. on a daily basis, I'd be a little worried about using it. Or the reusable uh, pads aren't Mm -hmm. that great in a camping situation. (laughs) I would, no, really. (laughs) I would, I would agree with you there. But yeah. Um, I didn't know if there was any, um, thing, uh, that you believe, uh, Kirsten, that is a necessity to have in a backpack. Uh, we were discussing the, um, the, the problems with chafing and what you should have in your backpack for that, or if it's just a, a lost cause by the time it's happening <laughs> in the field, um, the things you should have for blisters, just the things that make, uh, life a little more comfortable while working, um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's a few things. Um, I am a big proponent of sunscreen. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> it's obvious. Um, but that is something I run into people not having. Um, I know a few people who prefer the spray-on, um, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of that, but something that's non-greasy. Um, oh. I do carry band-aids. I know a lot of people who carry moleskin. Difficulty I have with that is it doesn't stay in place very well. Mm-hmm. So like medical tape is really great for that. Um, like if you have a, a small gauze piece to put over, say a bad blister, and then you just wrap it, that's more likely to stay in place, especially if you're looking at your feet. Um, but all in all, like my biggest things have been 
don't hesitate to invest in good boots and a good pair of insoles. Very true. And that goes seasonally. I mean, depending on where you work, of course, but if you do winter work that's in the snow or near snow conditions, like thick boots, because you can wear regular hiking boots and wear two or three pairs of socks, and at least for me, my feet still get cold. Um, winter hiking boots are very specific, and I've, you know, it dropped a good $300 on a set of those. And then, you know, the lighter summer ones, because you don't like your feet sweating <laughs> quite that intensely if you were, say, working in the desert or in the southwest exactly. or in the swamps. That's a really good point. I try to just have um, the one pair of boots throughout the year, and I've definitely found myself many times just being like, oh, my poor toes, when are they going to finally warm up? And it'll take about till midday. And even just with the nicest smart wool winter sock <laughs> liners you can buy, um, it just won't cut it. And you're 100% right. Um, sometimes you just need to spend the money to make your life just that much better better (laughs) protecting your feet your feet are an investment exactly and you have to have them working properly another thought is here in the northwest anyway we work rain or shine so good rain gear is a super necessity the stuff that you buy like you know the cheaper i hate to say cheaper but like cheaper like 60 dollar uh rain pants or so um Columbia makes a good set that's great for around town, but it does not cut it in the field. It might last a week. <laughs> um, so, you know, the the rougher stuff um, and also not being afraid to make it last. I have a pair that I think I have had for about five years. I just retired them and they are thoroughly duct taped from the inside um, <laughs> because screens demolish the um, – the waterproof lining on the inside mm-hmm. and those are some some big things bandanas are a true trooper and i always carry two or three trying to think of what else uh, as far as excavation wise it's nice to have i'm sure deidre brought up like a a wood pick or bamboo actually uh, we didn't get that much into excavation kits so okay. if you want to yeah. get that started yeah um Yes. Bamboo picks. Please continue. <laughs> yeah, so those are nice when you're working with uh, faunal or um, human remains because they don't scratch or mar. Um, they're very gentle and you can work around stuff fairly easily. I've heard of people carrying dental tools for stuff like that, but I haven't ever. <laughs> have you, Deidre? Dental tools are actually really expensive. I have uh, watch spring hooks. Oh, nice. And they have a, and they have a big handle, like a screwdriver, but the same little tip. Yeah. Yeah. I have that. And there's actually these little plastic, uh, paint spatulas that I have as well. Yeah. Um, but honestly, most of my excavation in CRM has been with a pickaxe. Yeah. So (laughs) you have to be quite so delicate. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I excavated a bison skull with a pickaxe and only chipped off one little piece. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Impressive. (laughs) And it was in heavy, it was in hard, dry clay. So there wasn't, there wasn't any troweling it out anyway. Yeah. It just wouldn't have been possible. 
Yeah. I do have a collection of hand pickaxes, like little small ones. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Um, and garden tillers and rock hammers and masonry hammers that I've sharpened the back end. Yes, I do have one of those um, that I've – I don't sharpen too much, but I have sharpened a little bit of my um, – rock slash masonry hammer it's not a true rock hammer it is a masonry hammer um <laughs> they're they're way cheaper yes exactly way way cheaper also one of my favorite things actually when it comes to excavation is this tiny little brush and dustpan oh, uh, yes. it's about four inches wide um or approximately 10 centimeters if you want to go metric um, and they kind of click together. It's It was like a $3 purchase some five years ago when I was in field school because I was having this conundrum of like the dust pans not fitting where I was working and I couldn't get these little amounts of dirt out around delicate things or working around uh, features. So I ended up find, tripping across it in like this little tiny hardware store or actually it was a true general store in Paisley, Oregon, a town of a very few people. Um, and that was probably the best longest lasting investment I've made <laughs> um, because it works every time it becomes popular when I pull it out and it's being used. Everyone's like, Oh, that's really great. Where'd you get that? That's, that's awesome. Um, and those are, those are pretty fun instead of the, the regular, whisk broom whisk broom it's a little bit cleaner it's a little bit finer but yeah it's it's quite handy i have a collection of nesting me made scoops i've made out of uh, a gallon bleach bottle and half gallon milk bottles and stuff like that oh nice and you scoop and you you cut them out so that you still have the handle yeah and you can scoop and they mold and i deal a lot with uh very large rock features Mm -hmm. that will never be flat um, ever. And the really great thing is if you're taking, uh, soil samples, they fit in the gallon bag. You can mold the, the end of your scoop and dump it into the bag. That is a brilliant idea. I may have to try that with my next soil sampling because it's always a super awkward thing and trying to make sure that it doesn't get contaminated by, um, nearby layers. Yeah. Yeah. It's a trick. <laughs> well, it, and that's as if you're doing the scoop, if you can scoop it out versus if you're taking the, the soil samples where you have to take it as a cube. Yes. Yes. And those are just different. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've been thinking about creating like a little scoop that, uh, or not so much scoop, but like a, a square that's exactly, you know, say one liter and being able to pop it in, pull it out little chunk or chunk you know dump it in the bag and you're done <laughs> see that's kind of what i have um it's my fiance's but i he's an archaeologist as well and i we totally steal stuff from each other's dig kits um and so like if i can't find something i'm like oh he took it um wow. he has this awesome thing and it looks like um the material from your metal clipboard but it's like molded really nicely and it is um, 10 centimeters wide, uh, 20 centimeters long, and it's made to look like just like this little rectangular box, but the two sides are open. So it can be a scoop, but then you can also use it as a measuring device. 
Nice. And then, so you can nice. chunk it into a, a wall if you need exactly 10 centimeter, um, um, like a, a soil sample that's coming directly out of a corner. And you yeah. can measure and just nice. push it and it'll take it out. Yeah. And it can also be a scoop. It can also do all this kind of fun stuff. And it's just like a little rectangular piece of metal. <laughs> <laughs> it's the simplest tools that are the most valuable sometimes. Exactly. So yeah, that's, that is incredibly handy. Um, and I think that's a lot of good advice for folks who are going into field schools, like make sure you have your um, careful tools so that you're not damaging um, much more delicate artifacts too. Just having a nice scoop. You can't go wrong. Exactly. Oh, yes. And one and, last thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, tape measure that is not too stiff does have metric and standard because of course historics are measured in standard mm -hmm. and yeah if you get them it, it's hard to find metric tape measures at least here <laughs> or wherever i've looked it's easier on the internet but if you go to your local hardware store it can be a challenge and i would opt for the uh, larger five meter instead of the three meter yeah because some of those smaller three meter ones are a little bit loose and they don't stay stiff, which can be challenging when you're trying to measure along a wall or anything longer than a meter. I've actually had really good luck finding the 50 meter tapes and regular metric tapes at Harbor Freight in the, if you have any of those around you. Oh yes, like, yes, that we do. Hmm. I was like, as opposed to going to the survey store for the 50 meter tape where it's like $75, they were $14 at Harbor Freight. Nice. So nice. And I've gotten a lot of uh, three meter long, like for survey uh, yeah. metric at the dollar store. Fabulous. They're, essen they're essentially disposable. And I did for about five years do the buying for, for field work for a company. And so we would just go to the dollar store, like all of these, cause <laughs> they're going to get rain on, they're going to get mud in them, et cetera, et cetera. I also really like uh, a folding metric ruler. That's my favorite kind. That's what I have in my uh, my dig kit and in my backpack. I always have because, that kind of folding because ruler. it doesn't break mm. when yes. it gets dirt in it. <laughs> One I actually like, and this was taught by my grad, taught to me by my uh, grad supervisor, is having lots and lots of uh, I think they're ten penny nails. They're a little bit. They're about as long as your middle finger, and oh, half centimeter wide. And when you're excavating. At the end of every level, in every corner that has a wall, you put this nail at the level when you're ready to start excavating the next level, and it has your ending depth and ending level number. Oh, nice. So that, like, this is the northeast corner of, you know, we would use a shorthand, like, northeast U5 L2 20 centimeters and so then if someone else because in CRM you're pushed all you're not necessarily doing the same unit the whole time you might someone might find out you're a good drawer and you have to go jump in a in a a, a pit or you have to go do some uh, hold the survey rods and stuff like that but this way no matter who jumps in that pit they know exactly where it was um, if someone didn't take good notes at least we have these nails yeah nice stuff like that and as he got that from working in south africa oh. um, on early man sites and that's how they uh there's a university degree in excavation that they get there and they teach them that 
hmm. that method of, of, and also that way, if your nail is still there and you have to fill in for the field season, you can come back, you're like, aha, there's my nails. Yeah, that's nifty. That's really cool. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back. Archaeology and Ale is a free monthly talk presented by Archaeology in the City from the University of Sheffield Archaeology Department. That's where the archaeology part of Archaeology and Ale comes from. As for the ale part, the talk is held upstairs at the Red Deer, a great local pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, on the last Thursday of every month. If you're in Sheffield, do come along, and don't worry, non-ale alternatives are also available. If you can't make it to Sheffield, never fear. You can listen to the Archaeology and Ale Talk every month, right here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And now, back to the show. And we're back, and we're now going to discuss a little bit about regional differences in terms of what you have to pack, um, what do you have to be prepared for. I've done most of my work in Texas. So for regions that are hot and thorny and cactusy and have a lot of snakes, you just can't get away with wearing the real lightweight pants. And you need something. I used to wear gaiters, but actually now I have chaps because I was getting a sweat rash at the top of the gaiters, which is no good. And so I have the chaps and they just clip onto my belt. Nice. And they're, they're brush chaps with a built-in snake chap. Uh, the snake chap only goes up to the knee. Um, and I know a lot of people will say, oh, I'll just keep an eye out for snakes. But that, that is one more thing you got to watch for. And we also found out, and most of my crews have found out, because they're required personal protective equipment for most of the companies I've done work for nowadays, not when I first started back in 0102. But now most of the places I've worked, if you're in snake country, you have to wear gators. Um, they're also great for thorny brush, yes. whether it's, yeah, whether it's cactus or, or green briar or, uh, blackberries or anything like that. It really helps a lot. Does that yes. so add a whole lot of weight to the point where you feel like you have to then take a, like extra water or anything of that sort? I mean, it adds a little bit of extra weight. I mean, everything does. And you can't bend your ankle as much with the gaiters on because they go all the way down to cover the top of your foot. Mm-hmm. But just keep it in mind and, you know, watch yourself and watch everyone else and make sure everyone's staying hydrated if it's hot. Yeah. But, but they do get, they do get hot, but, you know, I'm going to be hot anyway. How heavy are those chaps? They probably weigh a pound or two. Okay, so not so bad. They're not, they're not too bad. Um, and like I said, they go on my belt. Sweet. And then they just attach around, like, a loop around the leg? Well, yeah, well... Uh, you know, like chaps, like cowboy chaps. Mm-hmm. They're they're like pants with no no ass and crotch. <laughs> and so you you put your legs through them, but there's a zipper on the bottom, so your shoes can fit through. And then you zip them, and it's okay. closed. Nice. Um, I did have a problem. I'm a I'm a big girl. I'm tall, and there's not a whole lot of ladies snake chaps out there to start with. And the a lot of the guys chaps are almost straight up and down so to get something big enough for my thigh meant it was huge around my ankles so I ended up uh tailoring and altering my chaps uh so there was room for the thighs makes sense I tend to run into that quite a bit as well I recently invested in new rain pants and 
I ran into the same thing to where in order for me to bring my knee up and like walk through grass, <laughs> I had to go to men's because of course all of the ladies rain gear is made to, you know, accentuate your curves and fit to your legs rather than allow you to move. Because that's what exactly what a lady needs who's working in the field. Exactly. So the smalls, unfortunately, unfortunately on the men's were still so big that like I have to roll them on the top and they still drag a little on the ground. But the leg width is perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, that's a challenge. I'm 5'8", I'm so luckily most men's gear is tall enough, for, is the right height for me. Yeah, nice. The, just there's no there's no booty room. Yeah, that's I run into that problem with I was doing stuff in East Texas and Louisiana, and mm -hmm. I needed waiters. And I don't know to, I don't know if you've ever tried to buy waiters. Never. You, you basically have two types. One is they're they're basically big plastic rain boots that are pants, and they go on and they have little. Uh, suspenders on them and the other ones are like a neoprene wetsuit with boots like and there's a separate it's a, it's a whole separate boot that you buy that uh, the water can pass through huh crazy and i cannot find women's ones that go up into big and so i'm going these guys ones and to get them big enough for my butt i wear a women's 11 a men's nine and still, the feet were huge. Just gigantic. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? <laughs> and so then you're like, well, maybe we'll go a size down and we'll squeeze into this neoprene sausage pants and put these little shoes on. And they work, but whew, you don't, you're just like, no one take a picture. <laughs> well, we do not need this in the company calendar. <laughs> That's definitely something I've heard with um, a number of women is how difficult it can be to find uh, good field gear from um, comfortable backpacks to pants, shirts. Um, it's, it can be a real problem just trying to find anything that fits uh, as well um, in a, you know, typical women's size. And yeah, I've, I find like I'm 5'4", but I still have to use a lot of men's clothing because the women's pant will be too low and I don't need my pants riding down my butt while <laughs> serving or just trying to find a comfortable shirt that isn't super um, tight in the arms. I need to be able to move. And yeah, I, I, I think it's strange how hard it is to find good women's gear. And yeah. plus size women's gear just doesn't exist. Oh yeah, that's... That I can mention is rough. I mean, yeah. so earlier you mentioned um, uh, Harbor Freight with their... Yes. They mm -hmm. do have some magical things there. However, I they are a little bit on my um, naughty list for not having anything smaller than a medium-sized work glove. Oh, they, no. They just don't carry. And I wear, like, an extra small. I have nearly child-sized hand, hands. So it's either a small or extra small, depending on the glove. And I've had some luck with like Home Depot's, but because it, they have children's and women's gardening gloves. Yes, oh, yeah, and yeah. those those often work really well. Um, but you know, it's 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 hard to find things that fit, like you're saying. I mean, the yeah, just generally anything across the board. 
Um, I've even been struggling with sports bras because for whatever reason, it's like, it's sort of that expected shape because mm -hmm. girls who work out are supposed to be skinnier or something, but it's so, and I don't know if I'm just wearing the wrong brands, but the, like just the chest size, no matter like, you know, if I get large, it's, it's just too big and it's not actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. But the where the rib cages, it feels like they're all like rubber bands, and I'm oh, like, that's I constructive. Yeah. yeah, and I still need to be able to move. That's sort of the idea, I thought, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> with those. But yeah, they tend to be a little more constrictive, and it's been challenging to find what find ones that that work. Like I'll have to go through and try on like ten before I find something that's actually conducive to moving and sweating and you know, not having to be like, oh, okay, things are twisted or not in the right spot or, you know, chafing or whatever. Um, so that's, you know, a, another part of that. But I, I have problems with anything that has to go across the bust. Yeah. I'm quite fluffy there. <laughs> and for, for, for any person with a bosom, if it's, if you have like a 15 inch drop between your, your overbust and underbust, you might yeah. try looking at like a, a I use a Enel, E N E L L. Mm-hmm. Um, and Panache are the two that m tend to cater towards people with a large difference between their their bust and underbust size. Yeah, Enel is the Oprah jog bra. Oh, Ooh. and if you go Oprah to likes it. <laughs> and if you go to Title Nine, they they rebrand it as the Shock Absorber. Which nice. is a nice little name, and in there, there is a weight loss reality show that I will not mention. And if you look at the original seasons, all the women were wearing if they were, were big busted, they were wearing the Inel sports bra. Hmm. Huh. So, so in essence, we yeah. need Oprah to come out with her own line of like field gear. Yeah. And it'll be yeah. like wondrous and comfortable. <laughs> yeah. The the backpack sternum strap is my nemesis. Oof. Yeah. Yes. Because it's comfortable for anybody of any size. Well, well, because well if I don't wear it and I have a lot of gear on, especially if I have a lot of water in, I'll get little blood blisters on my mm. shoulders, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um and then I try to do the sternum strap. I'm like, well, do I go over? Do I go under <laughs> like those yes I tend and to so over but it's yeah. high up <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah well i found that if i if, if i use the stardom strap you know and by over i don't mean like going across the nipples i mean like up high across yeah. the clavicle mm -hmm. yeah. um, i have one there and i took the stardom strap from an older backpack and put it on and i strap and i clip it under my bosom nice like around the band of my bra. And does that just and make everything, um, the strap yeah, itself, like, yeah. more, they fit Yes, better? it does. Oh, yeah, because it pulls them out of my armpits. Oh. And they, they, they rest on that muscle. Yeah. That, that's right in front of your armpit a little better. And also, sometimes I'm with a company that, you know, wants to do a 100 shovel test a day or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't take my backpack off to, to dig unless I'm going to be going over 50 centimeters deep. And so I can do my shovel with my backpack on. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Yeah. It is handy. And 
Yeah. And I'm all and I'm always wearing my my safety vest because it has lots of pockets, and yes. I can't have enough pockets. And everywhere I work has guns, and <laughs> you can't even see the the lower one because I go in through the. I've altered my safety vest uh, to fit me. I've better, and I made the armpits really big so that I could pull that sternum strap inside the armpits of my safety vest and clip it underneath yeah. so it's not digging. I've also, I've also actually um, uh, changed, adjusted my um, my safety vest. Some of it is I got it like on the cheap at a um, a used gear shop for like two bucks, but it was also like a men's two XL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so vests are I am, huge. Yes, like a little dress. Yes, basically. So I cut it down, um, I mean, for for a couple of reasons. So one is generally with safety vests, they have a minimum, it, from what I hear, there's a minimum um, like uh, yardage that has to be shown. So if it's not wide, it has to be a little longer oh, okay. uh, of the fabric, the day glow, whether it be orange or yellow. Um, and part of what I kept running into was um, – it would just catch on everything. So going through brush, you know, you have sticks and twigs and thorns that try and tug at you. And when you're going over, you know, uneven ground, it can be dangerous. So I ended up taking it in. Um, and I'm not, um, I'm fairly small, um, like small to medium, but I have a very exaggerated hourglass figure, which tends to, um, make things baggy around the middle and easily caught. And that's where I did have to bring it in quite a bit. Um, And it's kind of funny because it reminds me of a tailored suit because it's a little bit longer. (laughs) But all the pockets (laughs) are in the wrong spot. I cannot for the life of me keep pens in the pockets that are on the chest for whatever reason. I I moved the chest pocket on mine. (laughs) I'll have to. I I still have to figure out how to reposition that properly. But that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, uh, I have the old uh, four service style ones with like the snaps in the front, and I took all the pockets off. I cut them. I cut up the the sides, and I put it back together, tailored, so it has princess seams in the back and in the front. And then I put the pockets back on so that they're not like at the apex of my bosom or under my bosom, but like either over it or down by my belly, stuff like that. Yes, that's what I've been running into. I'll have to I'll have to modify that one again. Yeah. Um, so getting back into you've strayed a bit, understandably, but to the regional <laughs> um, stuff. So working in the Pacific Northwest, which is not quite opposite of where Deidre works, but somewhat similar. Um, there's two different ecological zones, or three technically, that I work in. Um, I, on the east side of Oregon is all high desert. So it's similar to Deidre's in that there's a lot of rattlesnakes, um, waders are, or not waders, excuse me. Um, uh, what are they called again? Gators. There we go. (laughs) I do have a pair of those and those are super handy. If not for just the rattlesnakes that you don't generally find until you're going to step on them. Um, or you hear them sometimes, but 
uh, also for the sagebrush and other things that tend to rip up and tear up your boots and your pants pretty quickly. Um, those are also helpful in marshes. So on the west side of the Cascade Mountains, we have a lot of marshy grassland. And this is where, like, you have lots of thorns, lots of angry plants, um, as well as just, you know, you do want to do, when, it, when you start getting to the, like, standing water or things that are pretty close to standing water, it's always recommended to have um, good galoshes, but otherwise, gators are pretty handy for any of that stuff that will tear up the boots, like the leather on the boots. Mm -hmm. uh, and gators are fabulous because it does cover the top of the shoe, uh, the top of the foot, as well as the laces. It really kind of keeps a lot of that stuff out, which is also handy during test probes when you're piling or excavating. If you're screening and piling lots of dirt on your shoes, you're not getting it down in the laces. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I mentioned earlier that I do a lot of uh, year-round work, so there's stuff that's, um, if you, yeah, like working in the high cascades, it's near the snow line sometimes, um, or on the east side when it's cold and fairly dry, you'll sometimes get um, and get the snow out there. But it's it's a, a varied, quite a varied array of, of eco zones um, out here, as well as the coast, of course, which sand is. An amazing blessing for a lot of <laughs> in a lot of ways, um, but can be somewhat treacherous if you're in dry sand, which I'm sure you guys have experienced or at yeah. least close to that. Mm -hmm. So, so it sounds like it must take uh, quite a bit of planning for each project just to know like which zone you're going into and what exactly you'll need. Yes, that is something to always keep an eye out, and especially in places where you have, I mean, California might have a similar diversity, um, as well as Idaho, but it's, yeah, there's a lot of difference, like, okay, are we going, you know, sometimes I work up in Washington as well, and that's even more wet, um, but there's coast, there's mountains, there's desert, so yeah, lots, lots of diversity. That's similar here. We have we have the swamp, the forest, the prairie, the desert, the beach. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I know there's a lot more in Texas than we all think. <laughs> this is this is where it's where five different biozones meet. Oh, nice. So it makes for some interesting archaeology. Yes. And and it wasn't under the Laurentine ice sheet, so. There's some interesting stuff. Okay, cool. On that note, we're going to go on a quick break. We'll be right back. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. 
and we're back. We're going to discuss a little bit the things that you should consider having, like, consider the type of training you should get or type of gear you should have, especially if you're just starting to work in the field or even consider getting in the field, the type of things you should be prepared to do. So what would that be? One of the things I would seriously recommend is first aid CPR training and not like the introductory level, but if possible, and it can be a kind of a hefty investment that only lasts for about two years, is wilderness first aid training. Um, this is something I acquired probably six years ago, and I had used it in the first year that I had it, or first two years that I had it, and then since then a few times as well. Also being knowledgeable about your own reactions to things like heat and thirst, Dehydration, of course, is an issue. And as you go through and, you know, those of us who've been in the field know that, you know, the safety talk, everyone rolls their eyes and <laughs> kind of goes along with it. But it's important stuff. And there have been situations to where I've needed to use some of my, you know, first aid training. And those can be scary moments. So making sure at least one person on the field, hopefully they're not the ones that need <laughs> the assistance or aren't incapacitated to provide mm -hmm. it, narrate how to give it. But those can be valuable moments when you, mm -hmm. when you do need those, when you're in remote situations. Deidre, any thoughts? Uh, make yourself very familiar with the OSHA safety standards for the yes. various types of work you're doing. There are OSHA standards for confined spaces, for working outside, for working in heat, for working in cold for spiders, for snakes, all these things. And if you're interviewing with a company and say, who's your OSHA uh, contact person? You know, do you have a, a safety manual that cites OSHA compliance? And if they roll your eyes, don't just walk away, run away. You don't need the money that bad. Yeah. Um, I've, had, I've, I've had to file OSHA complaints against companies before. And, you know, I'm dealing with permanent repercussions because they didn't follow safety. And there's other things that I know now that were very much against OSHA safety that I can't believe that someone put a young, naive, fresh crew person into, uh, that being a three meter deep, one meter wide trench Ooh. with a spring at the bottom. Ooh. Yeah. Don't do that. Those are supposed to be step back. Um, <laughs> those even there's even the OSHA requirements for dealing with chemicals. Like if you're working in the lab and you're labeling artifacts, there's material safety data sheets mm -hmm. for those. You're not supposed to get woozy while labeling artifacts. If they don't have a way to off gas that stuff, they're not following the laws and it can hurt you. And if you're considering reproducing, it can hurt your future offspring. Yes. A lot of that is, is super, super true. And it can be spotty with implementation um, or just yeah. people not knowing one of the sort of interesting things with archaeology, and I'm not sure if this is, goes true for everyone, but there are a few companies who are really good about it. A lot that I've worked for aren't, is really being knowledgeable and sharing the knowledge on OSHA compliance with mm -hmm. uh, new crew members. As archaeology students, we don't get a lot of education on what that is or how or why. And people forget, don't ask, and don't take it seriously. And it is something that can be life or death situation. So things like the three-meter deep trench, you know, there's shoring. There's all sorts of tools that can be done. If you need to get that, that deep, you know, there are ways to do it in a safe manner. Yes. And there, 
Oh, cutting corners is not acceptable for, for most not. situations. And they'll, and they'll be like, hey, yeah, you're one of our people. You can, it's okay. You're tough. You're one of the guys. Yeah. You know, no. Uh, in 2011 in Texas, there was a CRM-filled crew person death because they didn't follow OSHA compliance, and it was because of heat stroke. Ooh, yes. yes. And that one can be really tricky. I've personally had heat stroke as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. And- I think it's a very com- surprisingly common thing that happens. It is. And, it, and unfortunately, once you've had heat stress, heat or mm-hmm. heat exhaustion, let alone heat stroke, you are for several years afterwards more susceptible and more prone to it. Exactly. And you really have to watch it. And it can go from heat stress to heat exhaustion to heat stroke in just a matter of minutes. Yes. And that's, yeah, you have to really kind of be on it and be willing to be like, I need to sit down. I need shade. I need water. Mm-hmm. And it goes beyond yeah. water. It's, I was, when I had heat stroke, I was fully hydrated. The difficulty is that I didn't have the electrolytes and ended up yeah. suffering liver damage. So that's, you know, there's, there's other things. And that's where like having the knowledge about some of those things that you are in danger getting or acquiring or suffering from there's Deidre you mentioned earlier the cold stress as well that is a big one and that, that will sneak up on you that one yeah they both will that one though it's almost always noticed by someone else like the person having it right. doesn't notice that it's going on so yeah training and just getting a general knowledge of the risks of working outdoors and not being able to, to, to trust your own instincts and yourself and how you feel. If you're not feeling right or feeling woozy, you know, don't blow it off as, Oh, you know, that's just me because I'm out of shape or whatever. It's you may be out of shape, but that doesn't mean that that's not happening. Like you were saying earlier on break, Deidre, the, it was what, two weeks for your body to acclimate to heat. Uh, minimum. And that's with full exposure, um, not being inside an air-conditioned building for the rest of the day. So things to keep in mind and just trust your yourself and how you're feeling and, and not being afraid to ask people if they're feeling okay or they may seem like a little off or, you know, um, there's a lot of a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it seems yeah. like, uh, I mean, a big part of this, what it seems to all boil down to is know your body know what your body needs and if you're if you feel like you're you're barely able to pick up your feet it's beyond that you're just tired um you're you're getting tunnel vision something's wrong just know your body and and if you have a good crew chief they'll be asking you questions exactly hey how are you doing and they're not just you might not know how you're doing but by answering this question they'll they're gauging your behavior like Mm -hmm. is your speech slurred are you looking off to the side? Stuff like that. Um, one thing I ask everyone, hey, when's the last time you peed? Mm-hmm. What color was it? Mm-hmm. Have you drunk water? Can you remember the last time you had some electrolytes? And this is in the cold too. People oh, don't yeah. want to pee when it's cold. And they don't want to drink water when it's cold. So hot or cold, water, electrolytes, water, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Just always constantly asking, asking. You're right. Like, have you peed or just are you drinking water? And even if it's you're starting to annoy people, just that that's okay. I'd rather have a crew chief that's constantly asking, "Are you drinking water?" than one that's just like, "Whatever." And and one that not everyone asks, "How much is left in your mm-hmm. Nalgene? How much is left mm-hmm. in your Camelback?" You know, do we need to start heading back to the truck now? Do we need? 
you know, I've, I've asked people on there like, no, no, I got plenty for the day. I have plenty for the day. And then we are the farthest point from their truck and they're like, Oh dear. And <laughs> exactly. as a crew chief, I tend to carry a, a couple of extra liters mm-hmm. of water uh, just because of that. But most always, don't. Yeah. It's always better to have a little too much than too little. Yes. Yeah. And then always and it's, and it's lighter in you than on you. And carrying <laughs> electrolyte tablets or some so kind of Gatorade. Many. I mean, something. All of it. Yes. And hey, Lots potato chips. You're burning calories. It's salt. Why not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's all the salty foods. I, my favorite is sunflower seeds. Ooh, yum. It's, oh, my God. It's, I always keep extra cliff bars and other power bar type foods stashed mm-hmm. away for extra yeah. snacks for that as well. Yeah, I'm a little chipmunk with, it's like, this is in this pocket, this is in this pocket, this is a good place for this, <laughs> just tuck that away, and then when I'm done with the fill thing, I'm like, what is in my bag? Or while doing laundry, and you just have a zillion wrappers in the washing machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, those homemade energy bars are really good. I didn't realize that I hadn't unpacked my bag last month. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, if you make them with the molasses they won't mold oh good to know i wonder if it'd be the same with honey yeah it's very similar (laughs) i didn't test it to see if it was still good but it wasn't moldy it's like we'll just toss that (laughs) all righty i think we've we've had a wonderful discussion do you either of you have any closing thoughts on just how we have our gear, like how we pack our gear, the regional differences, going to the bathroom in the field, um, first aid situations, training that you should have, and so on and so forth. Do you have any closing thoughts on the things we've discussed today? No, um, sure. Uh, I'll go. Um, have good boots. Make Find a pack that fits you. Everybody poops. Everybody pees. <laughs> And if someone can't deal, if someone who has studied anthropology can't deal with the fact that humans are human and do human things, fuck them. <laughs> you know, if you're like, I need a mydol, I need to go pee, I need some toilet paper, yeah. they can learn to deal with it. Yeah. So in essence, suck it up and get it done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't talk about my administration nearly as often as it happens. There's <laughs> a good uh, Margaret Cho line there. Yeah. <laughs> so you should count yourself lucky. Kirsten, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, just a couple. I would say don't mix your field gear with your household tools because it will be inevitable that you will forget your tape measure because you used it last week to hang a picture or whatever on your wall. And you're going to end up putting some sort of weird mud on something that you don't want (laughs) from your tools if you use it elsewhere. And lastly, if you need to, if you find yourself working in different eco zones often, keep separate like bins with the stuff in it. Like, you know, this stuff's for wetland crap specifically, or this is survey stuff or monitoring gear specifically. You know, like I don't take my hard hat out unless I am monitoring. 
uh, that goes in away spot um, and doesn't accidentally get brought with other field gear doing other things because that can also be extra weight that you don't need that you're carrying if you accidentally bring your you know, rock hammer with you on survey that's just bad practice so that's yeah, the only thing I have to add and then then we'll wrap it up is just make sure you have plenty of time to prepare your gear before heading out. It's always good to give yourself a couple days in advance because you'll probably forget something and be like, oh, I need to go and get extra cliff bars or I need to put more duct tape around one of my water bottles as an emergency or um, something along those lines where you're like, oh, I almost forgot that. So give yourself the time to prepare for a project. You'll not be sorry. Um, well, ladies, thank you so much for this wonderful discussion we've had. Yes, thank you. And seriously, thank you so much for the great advice. I, I hope the listeners enjoy it. Sounds good. All right. Here we go. Bye, everybody. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com dot com.